0: Welcome to Episode 2 of Barking from the Wooftops. I'm your host, Jim Gillis. Today's guest requires little introduction. Dr. Susan Friedman is a pioneer in the field of applied behaviour analysis. Susan is a psychology professor at Utah University. She's a keynote speaker all over the world. Susan had a profound effect on my career personally when I attended her paradigm-shifting seminar, Living and Learning with Animals, the Science and Technology of Behaviour Change. I'm super excited and truly honoured she was kind enough to join us for this in-depth conversation on the podcast. So without further ado, let me welcome Susan to the podcast.
1: Thank you for that nice introduction. The notion of science being paradigm shifting is really cool.
0: And it certainly was a profound experience in my career. And thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's truly kind of you. And I've been looking forward to it since we set it up. So thanks again, Susan.
1: Thank you. I'm honoured.
0: Great. So I just wanted to maybe start with, for people who are not familiar with you, or I'm sure they will be, but could you maybe start just with a little bit of background on yourself, first, Susan? You don't mind.
1: Yeah, I was an animal-loving child who was very anti-authoritarian in my behaviour. What that looked like is if an adult I didn't know told me what to do, I usually ran the other way. So... Um, That is relevant because it's part of the background that has me always searching for answers independent of what the cultural fog, I call it, um, might have us thinking. Um, And as I grew older, I I was a terrible student in school all my life, um, too much constriction. And then I got to college where I was able to pick my topics. And when I started learning about psychology, Suddenly I became an excellent student. Isn't that funny? It, it, it's so obvious that the conditions changed. I was the same person. And um from there, you know, life's travels uh brought me to getting a doctorate in a special education department that was a behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis department. And I was enthralled. I found so many answers that we're all looking for about how to arrange a more effective and kinder world. Um, And I worked in special ed for 20 years. And then at about mark 20 years, I looked up and um, decided that I needed a big lane change. And so I packed my behavior analysis up and I moved to working with non-human animals at just the right time, just when animal trainers and behavior consultants were also looking for something that was uh, more effective and a kinder approach and one that was situated in science and not just hearsay and personal magic. And now it's 25 years that I've been working with non-human animals and um, and here we are um, able to talk about it together, sharing a common language, sharing many of the same goals and having great effect.
0: Sure. And, and you're a uh pioneer and advocate of of something called applied behavior analysis. And I wonder if you could maybe just unpack that a little bit, if you don't mind, for, for people who might not be familiar with that area in, in terms of your definition of what that means, Susan?
1: Yeah, we do have a field definition. I don't have it pulled up um, and I don't have it committed to memory. That would be a good thing for people to look up because those three words are operationalized. They are defined observably. And measurably um, within the field, uh, applied, of course, meaning that we're working um, with uh, we're working outside of the laboratory and outside of the basic research um, environment and uh, behavior, meaning the things that people and um, other non-human animals do to affect their environment and um, analysis, meaning that we are analyzing a particular part of behavior, and that is the behavior-environment relationship. So if I were a neuroscientist, I would be studying how the brain affects behavior. If I was a cardiologist, how the vascular system affects behavior. But when we talk about behavior analysis, we're talking about how specifically a focus on how the environment moves behavior, and then behavior moves the environment. And that's why we talk about behavior as an empowered um, mechanism, because we're able to move the environment as it moves us. Um, so that's our, we we describe it as our level of analysis. And um, of course, it takes many different levels of analysis to come together like puzzle pieces for a total account of behavior. I think what makes behavior analysis particularly important to trainers and behavior consultants is that changing the environment is something we can do in order to change our animals' behavior. And um, rather than saying we're going to change their brain or we're going to change their liver or some other level of analysis, or we're going to change their genetic history, or we're going to change the genetic line that they come from, those are all parts of the puzzle as well, but they're not uh, as available, um, and they don't represent the the field of study of behavior analysis.
0: And, and that field gives us a tool um, to observe behavior, to 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 measure behavior and in the environment with that. And, and I wonder if we could talk about something in relation to um, the kind of human tendency for abstraction, where we may create labels and concepts and categorical buckets, which can obscure our ability to see that objective reality. And um, I know you're a big advocate for for removing labels from, from what we do. And I wonder if we could talk some more um, about that and um, whether those labels can prevent us from seeing actual observable behaviour.
1: Yeah, I think uh, labelling comes from a different model, a, a different level of analysis, again, if you will, a different focus, of explanations. Um, so what we're saying to say in another way is uh, the the explanation for behavior that you get depends on the science or the level of analysis, the focus of the person who you ask. So there isn't just one answer. There are many answers that come from different facets of this crystal and um, you know how to live well, successfully, healthfully. Um, and so knowing what each facet is best at contributing is a great launching point for, you know, covering all aspects of an animal's welfare and that's why one of the things that behavior analysts tend to recommend is interdisciplinary teams that you don't work alone that you have a veterinarian close with you you might have an ethologist close to you Um, I see Scott mentioning emotions. You might have someone who studies neuroscience of emotions, as well as someone who studies the behavior of emotions with you. So for our work, labels are often really problematic because they do just what you described. They assign a name to a whole constellation of behaviors, and they often don't refer to the context, the environment. The conditions in which the behavior occurs. So, if we say that, for example, a dog is um, uh, a dog has separation anxiety, you know, something that's you know very real. So, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That label is useful only in that it gives me a very general idea that the dog is the dog and the caregivers are very uncomfortable under the alone condition when the dog is left alone, and even at the very start of the signals to the dog that it will be left alone. And I say it as a gender neutral term, sure. um, which I learned from biologists. And now it seems like our social systems and sensitivities are catching up to the biologists.
0: Very good.
1: So, um, We say a dog has separation anxiety and that focuses on having something like you have an eye color or you have a disease or a dysfunction, a broken bone. But from a behavior analysis perspective, we don't talk so much from that pathological model, something is broken, as we do about the animal's behavior well described observably in the context it occurs so we might say, for this particular dog that has separation anxiety, I would change it to say that does separation anxious behaviors, if we wanted to give it a label, we ask, what are those behaviors, and under what conditions do we see them? So maybe we see uh, we describe a particular individual dog that will scratch persistently at the door, even to the point of bloodying of harming its own paws when the caregiver leaves or is out of the house and the dog is alone. That gives me the specific information I need to start thinking about what do we want the dog to do instead when a person leaves and how can we get there from where he is to where we want the dog to be. And so in our level of analysis, we push away the label, I always tease that we could call it Dumbledore. I don't know the specifics, whether you say it's separation anxiety or Dumbledore. What we need to know is exactly what does the dog do? And most importantly, when does the dog do it? Because the dog is not scratching and whining at the door 24-7. That fact alone shows us that the conditions are involved in signaling, do that now, and providing some kind of reinforcer that maintains that uh, class of behaviors that we call separation anxiety. So I hope that gives you an answer. The label is not helpful to the extent that it doesn't tell me what I, as a behavior analyst, or trainers and behavior consultants, most need to know, It's what exactly does the dog do so we know where we are, where we're starting, and under what conditions does it happen so that we can then start to bring in some of the successful behavior under different conditions into that condition.
0: Yeah, It's such a good point, and um, it could be unhelpful. It could also be harmful under some conditions. A lot of the cases I, I deal with, you hear labels like naughty, you know, being being one that, that I hear a lot, dominant being another, um, you know, vicious and, and, and attack. And, and these are very emotive terms, right? But they're not necessarily actual behaviors and measurable, observable behaviors. And no. um, it, it, it can be harmful to some people in terms of the lens of how they view th- those issues through because it will affect how they deal with those problems, right? Exactly
1: so. I mean, perfectly said, and it's a, it's a very real concern. So we need to keep bringing this issue to the top. You know, um, humans tend to have uh, a real affinity for novelty, right? So, oh, Friedman, we've heard about Unlabel Me for 20 years. Let's find something novel, right? Yeah. But, you know, we can't replace gravity, We can't say, oh, let's look for something novel and come up with some other idea of why our feet land on the floor every morning. Some things just are useful and um, switching them out for the next novel idea is to the detriment of the animals and the people that we're working with. I think this idea of switching out labels and bringing in observable, measurable behavior and conditions in which it occurs, that unit, behavior and conditions, is similar to gravity in the sense that we may get tired of talking about it, but it should not be a concept that's replaced because it's it's really useful and it's very valid.
0: Yeah. Sure, And that, that transition is lovely on onto... Your, your system of, of observing behavior, measuring behavior of your ABC technique that I, I absolutely appreciated at your, uh, at your seminar. And, and I wonder if you can maybe take us through that because that's a fantastic way of, of analyzing behavior, isn't it, that ABC uh, system that you recommend?
1: Right, right. And it's, it, you're right. It is a good um, segue to that idea of don't give up what is useful and valid because it's no longer novel, just because now you've mastered it. Because I do see people talking about other systems. I think that there's room for building out our ABC tool, but the nut of it, do you use that expression, the the hub of the wheel, the heart of the system, will remain to be this unit um, antecedent, what happens before the behavior that influences the behavior the behavior itself in measurable, at least observable terms and consequences, the outcomes of behaving that then feed back to the learner or the behavior, the individual, about what to do again under similar conditions next time. So that's a mouthful, antecedent behavior consequence. And there are some people, for example, you know, being a behavior analyst is not one thing. It's not one edifice. We all agree. We all talk the same. We all robotically are a something. There's a lot of disagreement and discussion. I think of that now because Joe Lang, who's such a notable contributor in behavior analysis, um, he says he doesn't like the ABC idea. That is not my own. It is a, a widespread apl- applied behavior analyst, the most widespread behavior analyst hub of the wheel. Um, he says he doesn't like using that uh, those terms because it makes it sound too easy. And analyzing behavior is not so easy. Um, and that's true. Sometimes it's not. But in our work with animals, there are many times, maybe even most times, where that's exactly what we need. It's a simple, clarifying a tool to ask why does the animal do this that is the consequence what outcome is the animal behaving to get that's the bc unit and then we expand it to include and what are the signals in the context the red and green lights that tell the animal do that behavior now for the outcome you're predicting and on what basis do we predict outcomes well That would be, for non-human animals, solely our our learning history, our previous experience, and our genetic tendencies, which also influence what we do and how we move our behavior. But once behavior is delivered to the environment, once behavior is performed, consequences, outcomes are always available to, to shape that behavior in one direction or another. So that's the ABC unit, and I think it's, it's really stood the test of time. I learned it in the middle 70s when I was coming up as a psychology student and um, have found it to be one of the most useful things that I can share with trainers and caregivers and behavior consultants. It's the first step out of the gate. Observe the behavior and describe it observably, unambiguously, and then ask, What outcome does the behavior produce? We call those consequences. What outcome or what feedback is the environment giving the animal for that behavior? And then look in the environment and ask, under what conditions does it happen? Because behavior is always conditional. Behavior always produces influential consequences. And uh, the more we know about the animal's motivation, and signals, the more we're able to change those conditions and teach new skills.
0: Because behavior always has a goal, right? It's just a I think game. that's
1: a great way to say it. And, you know, that idea of, of a goal, of an animal moving towards a goal, is something that is relatively new in my way of describing and thinking about behavior because we tend to think of it as um, from a laboratory perspective, is, you know, we, we stay very faithful to. I never know what an animal is thinking. So I don't know what their goal is. I only see the outcome. Um, and sometimes influential outcomes don't meet the goal. So there's some things we can think about when we use the term. But what I like about the term and why I, I use it well, as well more and more is from an evolutionary point of view, we can ask, Why has behavior evolved? What purpose does this mechanism behavior serve? What purpose does it serve? And the minute we say, what purpose does it serve? It brings us to that idea of, well, it helps us meet goals. So when I started to hear a sort of evolutionary um, perspective, which had not been in my early training, I did make a kind of shift in my behavior analysis thinking, that behavior is part of our biology and learning is part of our biology, like eyes to see, ears to hear, behavior to change the environment, to get closer to reinforcers and further away from aversive punishing stimuli. And then I started to to see the relevance of that idea of goal-driven behavior.
0: Yeah, looking at the behavior ethologically of the adaptive value of that behavior for, for that particular animal, that individual. And it is That's such right. an interesting, interesting way of looking at it, for sure. Right.
1: But it took bringing two levels of analysis together for me personally. You know, the evolutionary perspective had never been in my training. I was strictly looking at learning in the here and now, behavior change now. And then picking up some a little bit of that information really started me thinking, you know, behavior behavior is also an evolved tool that serves a purpose, like eyes and ears and legs and hearts. When I got that in my mind, it really did clarify my work with non-human
0: animals. Sure. And from that perspective, <clears throat> we kind of label it, been problematic, problem behavior, aberrant, you know, something that's undesirable. But ultimately it's just behavior. All behavior is communication and all behavior has a goal. It's we label it to be <clears throat> excuse me, problematic. Do you have a better term for that, Susan? All? Or are you happy with undesirable, problematic? We have to, I guess, describe it in some way um as, as being problematic. Is that fair? This is where labels are
1: useful. We're looking for one word to define The boundaries of a class of behavior. And we grope for the word because it's um, that question that people are asking, excuse me, nowadays more is who decides what's problematic? Right. So we're hearing that now with the very important um, uh, neuroatypical, neurotypical. Um, movement or awareness sensitivities that we're all learning about is who decides. So when a dog um, scratches its paws on the floor until they're bleeding, I think that's easier for us to come to consensus that that's not good for the animal. It's engaging in that self-harm. Although even that might be worthy of some discussion because we do hear people Talk about, for example, persistent pacing behavior of animals in zoos as maybe okay in that if if it is used to <clears throat> if it is used to um, uh, release stress or high anxiety, so even the behaviors we might class with a label as self-harm there's discussion about you know, from whose perspective. This is a very difficult area for us, is who decides. Who decides for the child? Who decides for the worker? Who decides for the animals in a zoo or animals in our home? What is desirable and undesirable? I would be giving it, um, it would be disrespectful to think that we were going to find an easy answer. It is a great philosophical, social, um socially important question, uh, and it has been of all time, so I'm very sensitive to not negating um the importance of that question. but what I do do is um you know i, I, th- I th- we have to we still have to act right, even given the complexity of the issues that surround what we do, we still have to act, and so um, I think, like, exactly as you said, you know, we need a term. And I think we can use whatever term we want. Again, we can use Dumbledore. As long as the term, the term doesn't have any inherent value. The label needs, gets gains its value by agreement, by by consent of a verbal community. If we say we're going to use the term undesirable, I, I, I rankle a little because that brings me to the who decides what's desirable. You know, all of my child life, my behavior was considered undesirable to the teacher, but it wasn't undesirable to my mom. It wasn't undesirable who who liked to raise a wild child. And it wasn't undesirable to me because as we know from our science, it was desirable what I was doing in, in the sense that it was getting reinforcers that I wanted right? Or I wouldn't have been doing it. It was allowing me to escape class. Um, So I think we can call it anything we want, as long as every once in a while, we go back and remind ourselves that this is not as easy as labeling. The label is a lot easier to put on this class of behavior. We could call it unsuccessful behaviors. We could call it um, unwanted we could call it uh, un- unhealthy behaviorally. <clears throat> I often call it unsuccessful because I think that takes a little bit of the value judgment of desirability off and is lensed towards thinking of it as this animal's going to be kicked out of its home or that child's going to be kicked out of their class if we don't give them other skills, other ways of getting their reinforcers and broaden what things are reinforcing for them. So you went down a rabbit hole with me that has to do with social appropriateness, social justice, you know, who decides? And that is never far from my periphery. Um, But we can say that if this animal continues to, for example, I know you had dear Mike Shikashio on, and I'm such an advocate of his work, um, I won't even, go there because I could, I could wax and wane about his contributions for too long. He's great and everybody should learn from him. Um, But if we say, you know, there's a dog that's snapping at the sun in the house, you know, we can make a defense for why that's desirable from the dog's perspective or, or the dog wouldn't be doing it. But if we think about it as successful, it's Successful in a very short term reinforcer grab for the dog, but in the long term of that dog's life in a home, it will not be successful. The dog will either be euthanized, or the dog will be put in a shelter, or the dog will be rehomed time and time again. So I think it's just one of those things that words are insufficient in describing all of that. And so we kind of bumble along with a term, any term. And we know at the heart of that term, we're trying to help animals be as successful in the environments they're living in as we
0: can. That's such, such good points. And I really want to take it back to the, maybe the repetitive element of some of the behaviours and and we would maybe have perceived them to be kind of goalless, particularly in the self-injurious behaviours. And and I'm quite familiar with this because my dog Floyd uh, had flank suckling issues coming out of, Nearly two years of been institutionalised in a kennel and he had a, a lot of a lot of problem behaviour, <laughs> for lack of a better term, right? One of those we need problems, a term. yeah, Yeah, exactly. um, one of those ones yeah. was an attempt to self-soothe and, and, and soothe the stress he was under. And, and I guess if we looked at that as being kind of goalless, we'd maybe misinterpret it. Whereas you know he's quite quite valid to, to self-soothe under those conditions. Is, is that fair to say?
1: Well, first of all, it's a great. It's a great example, and I'm I'm thankful the dog is with you uh, because he wouldn't have certainly made it on this planet had he been with many other people or just stayed in that shelter. Would have been tough for them to care for him. Um, You know, self, yes, that behavior has function. Um, I I believe that all behavior has function, and that science leads us to have that be a reasonable conclusion. So I agree with you there. Whether that behavior was discharging anxiety that is self soothing. So we move to the brain, you know, brain chemicals um, to that level of analysis. And we would ask a neuroscientist, um, you know, have you seen, um, given your brain technology, that there is a decrease in the chemicals associated with the feelings, the emotions of anxiety, and so forth and so on? But it's also possible that that behavior was an operant behavior that is a learned behavior Um, uh, for lack of other things to do. It's, you know, we can run through our hypotheses um, and they can be maybe less appealing than the self-soothing, which really rings a bell because we all, you know, do things that make us feel calmer or, you know, um, things like this. Uh, so that's certainly a, a bona fide hypothesis, but I, there are others we could explore as well. And I think that those hypotheses about the function are only as useful as they lead us to good interventions. So whether we consider it self-soothing or we consider it a behavior that, um, whose function was perhaps attention when the staff came by, or maybe it was escape that the staff backed away. Um, There are other hypotheses and they're only useful to us to the extent that they lead us to successful interventions. So again, we have that label process uh, problem. Call it what you will. We know that what we want to do is teach this dog other ways of, of getting its needs met. And we want to expand its activity repertoire so that it finds reinforcement in being active. And we also want to teach it how to remain calm on a mat and restful without going to that behavior. Yeah. So it's just an area that we don't have very many definitive answers about. And, and the answers will depend on whether you talk to a behavior analyst, a neuroscientist, a veterinarian. Um, so again, that idea of different levels of analysis being different puzzle pieces in our jigsaw puzzle is important. Um, but we do know, as learning specialists, how to rearrange the environment to make that behavior uh, less likely, healthful or successful behaviors more likely. We know how to shape new repertoires. So the animal has more choices of skills to use in a day.
0: Yeah, sure, and I guess that, that that's a, a great point. And I wanted to lead that on to an applied behaviour analysis. Is there a potential limitation for consideration of the emotional state of, of, of the animal at that point? With with the case of point with Floyd, he was two years institutionalised in a kennel. When he came out, he had chronic stress. He was. Under socialized, a lot of causality to his behavior underpinning, you know, I guess, um a lot of his behavior. Uh, is there a limitation in applied behavior analysis under those conditions for the emotional state of the animal, or is, is that factored into, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, um no, it's not a limitation. And I do, um, I have a, a two hour presentation on. Um, comparing a behavior analysis view or one behavior analysis view of emotions and compare it to the neuroscience or classical views um, that might be interesting sometime for us to talk just about that. Um, We have, I think, a common behavior analysis approach. And the reason why I'm being careful to say it that way is because I don't want to be one of the behavior analysis analysts who um, who talk about behavior analysis as though it's one edifice and it's nothing but all agreement with us all thinking and doing it the same way. We share some very important common um, philosophies and scientific evidence-based um, beliefs, uh, but there's a lot... On the edges, where we might approach things very differently, depending on our training and who we work with, our experience, who we're influenced by. And I think that that's not well known to the public. You know, they think of behavior analysis as one thing, and that we all do it and say it and talk about it the same way. So I want to make sure that in my conversations now, I always make this point and try and enrich our understanding that way. So I would say a very common um, explanation of, be- of emotions among behavior analysts was uh, really fleshed out, really um, described and discussed uh, more deeply by one of our old contributors, Israel Diamond, uh, Gold Diamond. If anybody wants to follow that trail on Google, And Joe Lang, who, again, I mentioned, because he's brought a few very new perspectives. They're not new to behavior analysis. They're new to me. My training took a different branch of the behavior analysis tree. And so I didn't hit these great contributors information until recently. So you see, we're always growing and learning. Um, And that view of emotions is really to break it out into two different classes, Uh, One is emotional behavior that we can observe, like the hackles up on a dog, the whale eye, the lip licking, that we tend to see across individuals um, within a species in response to certain eliciting conditions. Remember, we're always going to keep behavior and conditions together. We're going to build this habit of not talking about behavior in isolation, flank-sucking, but flank-sucking under what conditions, which you did describe. And so we've got emotional behavior that we deal with. You know, we try and understand and, um, and help animals to be the happiest emotionally we can. And then we have emotions, the feelings. And those are those private events that only we experience inside us that involve the whole organism as does all behavior, it involves our brain function and our heart and our skin, you know, and our gut. All of those are involved in emotional feelings that we observe inside ourselves. And and then we learn to give them a name by the conditions we're in. So to clarify what I'm saying, because this is hard to, I had to study, you know, Really hard to understand and be able to describe this way of looking at emotions. Um, For example, I always use the example of my children. Um, I can remember um, when my little daughter, so between two and three years old, crying in the afternoon. I remember saying to her, I see you're crying. You're upset. Come here, sweetie. I'm so sorry. Sometimes, you know, what's the matter? And of course, she didn't know. We often don't know why we have these feelings um, because that takes learning to be able to identify them. And it takes observing the conditions that are triggering them. And I'd say to her, well, very often when we cry this time of day, it's because we're tired. So let's go lay down and take a little snooze. I'll read a book, take a little snooze, and let's see if that lifts your spirits, lifts your emotions to feeling happy. And we would do that. And when she would wake up, if she was happy, I would say to her, well, look at that. So next time you feel that way and the tears start to flow and you feel all those things inside, those unhappy feelings. So I'm labeling it for her, teaching her to give it a word. It may be that you're tired. So I'm giving her Uh, antecedent cause. And now I'm giving her an action. Let's lay down. Come and get me and I'll read you a story. If she woke up and she was still feeling sad, as evidenced by the emotional behavior of cryy, whiny, clingy, whatever, notice all these words that we've learned to describe that, I might say to her, hmm, well, it doesn't seem like tired is the answer. Let's go get a nibble. Let's go get something to eat. And then we would eat something and if she was lifted, I'd say, "Huh, look at that." So sometimes when we feel those feelings that produce that behavior, we're hungry. Next time you feel that, let's go get some food. So when I think back about how we come to understand our emotions and talk about them with one another, I see how much learning goes into that. So there's so much uh, preparing with with verbal language, with language, um, the way we talk about, the way we experience, the way we handle emotions. And even now with, in a therapeutic environment with humans, we are helping clients to describe what they're feeling that we can't see, that's only private to them. We're helping them give it a name. We're helping them look at their lives to see how those emotions are moved by their conditions. And then we empower them to change conditions to change those emotions. So the, <laughs> then the big, oh, please go ahead. Oh, no, no, I, I, mistaken,
0: sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the weird biological beings just look like our animals. And if this maybe takes us off on a little bit of a, a tangent, but it, it, it is a, a valid point about you know, free will and, and whether that exists in, in biology, which underpins all behavior and that behavior has multiple causality. Is that, is that fair to say from your point of view?
1: It is fair to say, and I'm watching the chat, which is interesting. I so wish we could like be together in the same room, you know, and touch each, other, each other's shoulders and I could see the body language. Um, I would make one tweak. And for this one tweak to your description, I have to ask for people to take a deep breath and just for one moment, one moment, suspend what you know and the conclusions you've drawn based on your training and your understanding of how the world works to consider, just briefly, consider one addition to what you said. We are biological beings. Without biology, without a body and a brain, there is no behavior. However, to say that our biology is the onset of our thinking behavior and our emotions is to miss that something had to influence those systems. So there's a great quote from Skinner that I'll I'll mash up by paraphrasing. I wish I had it handy. Actually, it's here, but it would take me too long to dig it up. I should put it on the yellow sticky. He said something like, it's not enough, so keep your minds open for a moment because sometimes you say the S word, Skinner, right? I'd get further saying shit. I'd get less eyebrows raised than when I say Skinner in some audiences. But stay with me now, you know, to make the goal to be, to learn or to have something new to consider in addition to what you know and you're, and you're confident about. He said, it's not enough to just describe that the animal is frustrated or anxious. We need to push through that observation and ask, what in the environment has onset the frustration? So I am not denying the biology that gets us feeling anxious, that is rapid heart rate, dry mouth, churning stomach, right? upset thoughts, thoughts of failure, of impending doom, of fear, of what's going to happen next that I can't control. All of that is happening in your body. Without a body, there's no behavior. But we can then ask, what in your environment is co-influencing? So I have an exam tomorrow, and I'm afraid that I haven't studied well enough. Or I'm, for me, going to the dentist, apologies to the dentist. I always use this as my go-to anxiety example. I'm going to the dentist, you know, or um, or general, uh, general lack of control over too many days. Too little control over my reinforcers due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or too much sickness and death in the world, not even in my own life. You know, I remember hearing a car crash out an office window and somebody saying, I hope it wasn't anyone I knew. I thought that was such an odd comment because it would be anxiety and upsetting, anxiety producing, whether I knew the person or not, you know. So I offer you this idea that when we talk about the biology being the onset of emotional feelings and emotional behavior, I think that's not enough. I think that's our cultural fog giving us a start point <clears throat> that is valid and important. Our biology, including our neuro and our, our heart and everything, our holes, all those systems. But what our cultural fog has taught us to do is to put blinders on and not ask that last question, which is, but what's going on in your life that is triggering those brain chemicals and function that is making your heart burst out of its chest because if we put you in I think of that old-time science fiction movie do you remember it the brain in a jar the black and white film oh you're too young (laughs) we need to get a link to that movie because it's great Um, I'm a big sci-fi fan um, which does color my Trying to stay open for new explanations that will be even more helpful is if we put your brain in a jar, you know, in other words, if you had no body and no environment, your brain wouldn't be doing much for very long. So I think an even more powerful way of looking at behavior than talking about the brain causing it is to say, without a brain, and without a body, the brain has to be embodied. And without an environment, we would have no behavior. Now, pick the level of analysis that is most interesting, inspiring, and useful, most reinforcing for you. If you're most reinforced by brain explanations, then neuroscience is your, is your science, right? And I'm a big consumer of neuroscience. I love the brain. It's the most amazing organ on the planet. But I would say that learning, that is change based on environmental experience, interaction with the environment, is the most amazing evolutionary adaptation. That we are born able to change what we do based on where the environment is moving us through volcanoes, hurricanes, COVID, needing to give change at the supermarket, you know, needing to raise dogs that are sucking their flank instead of chasing a ball, right? Mm. This has got to be the most marvelous adaptation of all. Although eyes are pretty amazing. Brain is pretty amazing, yeah? So if that opens up a little crack for an additional correlate to behavior, for those of you who are, very confident that the brain explains everything independent of environmental influence. You know, I I honor that choice and that training. My choice is to see that it is more useful than just observing what the brain is doing that we then see as frustration or anxiety to say what in the environment onsets that behavioral repertoire and what changes can I make in terms of environmental arrangement so the behavior is not triggered and in terms of learning so the animal has other things to choose to do that are reinforcing besides flank sucking. So pick your level of analysis Far be it from me to say you don't get to pick your own level of analysis. (laughs) And the brain is, we call her the sexy sister. She is by far the sexiest sister. When the (laughs) the brain comes into the room, everybody's like, ah, wow. But for me to say that an animal might flank suck because of an impoverished environment. You you gave us all the environmental answers. (laughs) Impoverished environments, under-socialized environments. You know, too little experience with a variety of, of people and so forth. That's all the stuff that behavior analysis is made of. And that's my sexy sister,
0: right? Well put as well. And I always learn something here when I speak to Thank you for that. So, so to, to kind of encapsulate that behavior rooted in the environment. And, um, and it helps us to look at it in that context, that, that individual, that study of one that you so eloquently uh, put in, um, uh, is that we look at that individual in relation to their environment, essentially, is that fair?
1: Absolutely. And it's a it's sort of a demanding thing for us to spin these two plates. On the one hand, I'm saying the fact that the environment influences all behavior, including what the brain does, um, is a universal principle. On the other hand, I'm saying, don't look universally. When you're in front of an animal, look at just that animal. Take all of your universal principles and your best teaching practices and let that individual be a study of one, its own. Let its behavior generate its own generalities for you and then work from there. Because, I mean, look at the way that those... um, Species or breed generalities have harmed all of us. Women, oh, she's a woman, but not all women are the same. And so by giving me that label, it may be limiting or it may be expecting something different than I can give. Or Scotsman, right? <laughs> Think of all the generalities. I won't go into those those stereotypes. All those, you can tell me, all those generalities Or American. You know that's often in my way when I'm out in the world, or uh, bulldog, pit breeds, mini breeds. You know, so although we may have valid, average generalities that help us talk about uh, goals, uh, you know, general uh, expectations—not goals, general expectations. Once we're in in our job hat and out of the pub and in front of that animal and saying, how can I help this individual? That individual is just Spot or Blackie or, you know, right, whatever. Um, In my house, it would be Ray, Finn, and Athena, right? Or my daughters, Marnie and Leah, or my husband. It's just Neil. It's not men. It's not cowboys, you know, Westerners. It's not, right? And so that's why it's important. Those generalities can give us the broad expectation, but to the extent that that individual in front of us doesn't reflect their breed norms, we are going to spend time in the wrong direction and we're not going to see that individual. So it's such an easy thing, you know, to say, because it's near and dear to all of our hearts, is I want you to see me as Susan First In this context, a behavior analyst next, you know, maybe a mom, you know, in there, an animal lover. I'm many things, and the way that I behave them is unique to me as it is to you, as it is to the dogs we're helping. So one under-socialized dog may flank suck. Another under-socialized dog may be aggressive, that is, you know, uh, fast bite, bite, and lunge. Um, And another dog might be just completely shut down and have a very low level of affect and behavior. So we say the study of one, it reminds us that we can do all the studying about generalities we want. Before before I go to Scotland, I read up on the culture and the land and have a land-shaped cultural behavior, right? Um, And so forth and so on, your history. And um, and then when I sit with you, I'm sitting with Jim, and you may be more like a New Yorker than you are like a Glasgow guy, depending on your individual genetic tendencies, behavioral learning history, and your current conditions. Yeah,
0: such a good points. Such a good points. Somebody who I follow quite closely. I don't know if you have came across him before, Robert Sapolsky. Doctor Yes,
1: uh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. He says that it's important to interview that particular animal in their natural environment. And I wonder how much that impacts on what we view as dogs being in a natural environment, when in reality they're more like captive animals. Is, is that fair to say about companion animals, and particularly dogs? Um, I kind of feel that their conditions are more replicated like captivity rather than being a natural environment. And in Floyd being a Labrador, he didn't get to express much Labrador behaviour, funnily enough, in, in a kennel. It's not a particularly natural setting for, for for him as an individual. And that had a real adverse effect on his overall behaviour. And I wonder how many dogs are suffering from that. Would you view dogs in that way too, as being captive animals, potentially?
1: Absolutely. I view our children that way as well. And I say that seriously, right? They're raised under conditions where someone else is making all the major decisions of their lives. Um, and we see some similarities as the goal is similar to build enough skill, a big enough repertoire of skills that they are freer to choose for themselves and still be successful. Um, that's a mixed bag for me. Um, and it's it's sort of the ethological reference that that uh, Robert is referring to. And I think of Kim Brophy um, and and she would be an interesting person to interview um i enjoyed her book very much and that's that's really her her big emphasis and her passion to disseminate is that these dogs come with a genetic history that makes it more likely that they'll do some things that are breed specific or breed typical than other things so you know you see that most labradors uh tend to Pick up and hold things, you know. Whereas maybe, um, and I don't know a good example, I'm not learning enough in the breed descriptions, but maybe um, a terrier is bred to grab on and then spit out or something like that, right? And so, again, you know, this notion that behavior analysis is denying genetic tendency is really one of the great misunderstandings. Of of um, our work and of really of Skinner's original work because there's much writing that shows um, acknowledgement of those genetic tendencies. So that blank slate idea was always um, I call it the Reader's Digest version or the People Magazine version, and it was never it was never accurate. So we see that breeds have tendencies that originate not from their environment per se but from their genetic history and that when we block those tendencies that that can be really um adverse for animal animals behavioral health right distressing to try yes to to tr- distressing to 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 try and turn um you know a, a basset hound into a whippet you know their, their biology constrains meeting those goals. So at no time are we denying or not acknowledging those biological tendencies. And the better we can match what we ask of our animals with what they are evolutionarily designed to do, the better. So if we provide um, feed high up for giraffes, you know, and low down for horses, right, likely the better they will fit the environment we're providing. Where I do think it's a problem is where we don't include in our understanding that the environment always influences even those genetic tendencies. So we do see giraffes being able to have great enrichment by nosing through hay with special treats on the ground. And we do see horses that have huge uh, parties under apple, ripe apple trees. In fact, we, we know that they get drunk from eating too much apples, you know, and they come staggering oh. <laughs> away. Yeah. Um, I have a video that's hilarious. So I, I, I am only reminding myself all the time that the, the genetic tendencies are real and important to know and consider and to match environments to those tendencies as much as possible um, because they are often what an animal can more easily do. And so the animal is happier. But I'm also aware that we come with this ability to learn, just like we come with the ability to be fast in running, like the whippet, or great at sniffing, like the basset hound. We, those, those breeds also come with the ability to learn as a genetic endowment. And so we might ask the whippet to walk slowly in heel position. And we might ask the um, Basset Hound to walk, you know, 50 steps without sitting down. (laughs) Right. And they can learn to do that. So it's about where are the limits? Where are the reasonable limits? You know, where are unreasonable limits and us trying to, Fine tune our dials to just do the best for each individual.
0: Sure. And, and you would call those genetic behaviors action patterns. Is that fair to say? It used to be fixed action patterns, but we've kind of evolved that term onto model action patterns. Is that, is that right? That's right.
1: Yeah, there's really there's three categories. That doesn't mean that they're not overlapping. Categories, labeling, classes, as we started, are just to make an ease of communication and organizing things organizing the sock drawer by color or by fabric you know we can do it many ways right now um, I think ethologists and behavior analysts talk about um, three very strong genetic sources one is simple reflexes so blinking when uh, air you know hits the eye or goosebumps when you're in cold or startling um, when a sudden noise loud noise occurs so we've got those behaviors that are clearly heavily genetic source innate they're not a result of experience um, although you may learn to blink better to clear your eye of the debris right so if you do fast blinks and it doesn't <laughs> fast blinks and it doesn't help um, <clears throat> then consequences may select for rubbing or taking a cloth and not rubbing so you see there's learning selection by consequences and everything um, so those are the simple reflexes. And then we think of those modal action patterns. And ethologists switched from calling it fixed action patterns to modal in acknowledgement of learning, even with these genetic behavior chains, like the way that um, wolves, all wolves tend to follow a specific behavior chain when they're hunting. Um, a particular species of bird, like lacin albatross, Uh, tend to do, I think I showed you that video, tend to do a very particular set of behaviors for uh, their mating um, attraction ceremonies during mating time, mating season. So there are the modal action patterns. But we know that on repetition of those patterns, animals are learning to do them in ways that are even more successful. They're not robots. A wolf is not out there using this uh, genetic pattern of behavior like a robot. The environment is influencing where they go, whether they slow down, depending on which prey they're going after, whether they speed up, whether they hide first. You know, they're still learning in those patterns, although it's awesome that genes are passing that pattern, general pattern on. And then um, the third one that we don't talk about often enough is uh, we call personality or inherited behavior tendencies. And so we can see in puppies, as we can see in children, some are more gregarious from the moment they open their eyes. And others are shy from the moment they open their eyes. And we can operationalize that. We can describe that observably. The gregarious one is climbing all over the other puppies. And the shy one is just hanging back a little bit alone, perhaps. So we have behavioral tendencies that are also available to be changed through the learning processes. We do help shy people be more gregarious with skills and we help gregarious people wait their turn in a conversation right? And those kinds of things. One other comment about behavioral tendencies, labels can be especially problematic when we talk about personality, because we tend to put labels on individuals and they never get those labels off. Like I was the rascal sister, the poor student, the one who was always, you know, escaping things. And I ended up with a PhD. I mean, how on earth did that happen? Totally unexpected. Right. Next to my Ph.D. on my wall is my third grade teacher's comment that she'll never make anything of herself because because she talks too much. (laughs) So I've had to learn when to talk and when not. Um, But you can see I'm still talking too much. Um, So I'm very leery of, you know, I observe personality in the animals I'm working with and the people I work with. But I try and keep that really loose, super thinking loose. Because once that label gets slapped on an individual, even though their behavior defies the label, we're still sticking them in that damn box. So, yeah.
0: Such a good point. It really is. And that applies to to dogs so much where they may be labeled as as aggressive and that label will will stick with them, even if it's justified aggression where it's perfectly normal in the context that it's been delivered in. It's working for the animal. And, and exactly. if you label them, you know, vicious being another really emotive term, which can, can stick with a dog where, where they're just defending themselves in a situation it'd be perfectly normal. And as you say, that that can stick with them for a long, long time and have consequences, right?
1: Exactly what I'm describing. I mean, that puppy that's climbing over all the other puppies, pushing them out of the way and so forth and so on, is that puppy gregarious? or is it aggressive? The labels can be very harmful. So we use them because they do carry some meaning and, and they allow us to communicate in short term, but we should never be shy to say, what does that look like? And under what conditions does it happen? The two together, always the unit.
0: Absolutely, and, and one a uh, label that I wanted to discuss with you to get your thoughts on was uh, impulse control, which is a, a term which uh, is widely used in dog training. Um, and, and I wonder whether we could maybe, you know, pull it apart a little bit. Is it maybe better to describe it as rather than impulse control, as stimulus control? Would that be a better way of viewing it? Yeah, I hear
1: Sarah Owings' influence in your Owens in your <laughs> question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and she does a great job of of untangling that. So we've talked about so many things that are very complex balls of yarn, you know, as we untangle them and unknot them and put the threads back together in a way that's useful. Um, I agree that that's just a label. Uh, I don't know the extent to which genetic tendency, brain function, the cardiovascular or gut. And I mean, nowadays, uh, people who study the gut, the intestinal system, the digestive system, um, have found that in a very real way, the intestinal system has its own brain. That is, it's not driven by this brain. Even even when this brain is dead, that system is making decisions and moving on its own. So, And there are neuronal cells there. And I mean, I think everybody needs to loosen their grip on what we think we know because it's changing fast. Right. But anyway, um, so, you know, if we did a necropsy on an animal at this point, we would not be able to see in any of the other correlating systems to behavior impulse control. It's not a thing. It's a label, a concept for dogs that do something other than what we've cued or what we want, given the conditions we're in. That's the stimulus control part, given the conditions that we're in. So, for example, when we open the door, the dog rushes through a door dasher. Look how many names we have for it, as though it's inside the dog in a fixed and immutable way. I have a dog dasher. Um, We might say that dog is lacking impulse control. And that would give me a general idea that the dog is doing something under certain conditions that you're not happy with. That's what it means to me. And then I must say, what is the dog doing under what conditions? Well, the dog doesn't listen to me. Well, okay, so the dog doesn't respond to your requests, but we're missing the conditions. Under what conditions does the dog not listen to you? When I open the door and I say, stay. OK, now I've got a description, a behavior conditions unit I can work with. And so we can say, well, that cue, that stimulus is not controlling. I actually don't love the word control because I think that got Skinner into a lot of trouble right after second, the Second World War, talking about control. Of course, he meant it experimentally and, and scientifically controlling variables like weather and so forth and so on. But in the popular world control has as it should often very negative connotations. It certainly did when for little Susie, right? For the kid in school who didn't want to be controlled. So I I've decided to just try and influence that word a little bit. I would say stimulus influence the influence of that antecedent cue over the behavior is very weak. And it tells me, perhaps I'm hypothesizing now. I try not to come in, you know, white knuckling what I'm thinking. These are hypotheses. So I want to be loose. It may also mean that the reinforcers outside the door are stronger than the reinforcer for sitting at the door, which is the desired behavior, the behavior we want the dog to do. And then I ask myself, is this something I can influence? Is there a science and a technology in any place on the planet that can help me influence my goal behavior, that I have a dog that is patient at the door? Thanks, Gigi. Um, (laughs) Rather than impulse controlled, right? All impulse control... Ever means is that there are reinforcers stronger for doing something else than there is for doing what we adults have asked of our learners. You know, that's a behavior analysis of impulse control. So, also from a behavior analysis point of view, impulse control is a lack of skill of doing a particular behavior in those conditions. That's what it means. So, when I see the plane going by with the streamer, impulse control. I see at the end of the streamer, you know, that what that means is reinforcers are stronger for doing other behavior. And Kay Lawrence said it best. She simply said, I, I don't remember if I was visiting her, which was such a joy that I had that opportunity. She said, um, she showed me a video of a dog doing something she had asked following the cue. And she said to me, So I didn't teach impulse control. I taught the dog to sit by my feet and wait for the cue to go after the ball. Now, she would never identify herself as a behavior analyst, but these are natural principles. These describe the natural world. So you don't have to have particular training to observe and use them. When I teach the dog to stay when I open the door and wait until I say, go, go, have I changed his impulse control? Have I changed something? In the impulse disorder? Or have I simply taught him that waiting produces equal or more valuable outcomes than door dashing? So but do of course, it takes, yeah, it takes skill to teach impulse control. It takes skill to teach each one of these behaviors of waiting until cued, given the dog's history of super reinforcers by going through the door. It takes skill and education and supervision and practice and failure and success to refine this training skill set. Isn't it easier to just say the dog has a problem?
0: So true, such a great example too. And I have another one that's very similar to that is um, teaching impulse control for food um, for you know the kind of traditional technique of, you know, teach an adult to, to, to control urges around around a food reward in your hand. And, and what I tend to find is they're building potentially extinction and frustration into that process by withholding the food in the way they're doing it, and then labelling it and misinterpreting that as poor impulse control on the dog's, the dog's part.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> so true, say,
1: say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree completely. And that's the problem with labels. So once you and I agree that what we want is a dog that isn't, you know, um, jumping up, trying to snap. You know, I think of sea lions because I have met many a sea lion that will bite a trainer's leg to get to that bucket of fish. You know, it's a very common behavior problem, an unwanted behavior, an unsuccessful behavior, behavior problem. Let's call it that a mistake. Let's be fearless. We can use any label we want because we'll never stop at just the label. We will always ask, what is the animal doing? Under what conditions? So call it Dumbledore. So teaching sea lions that there's benefit to staying on station rather than charging and biting my leg for food. And then we have to ask ourselves, how did that sea lion even learn that biting is related to getting the food reinforcer in the first place, right? So did they figure that out themselves because we didn't start to train the animal um, soon enough? Or, you know, wh- where should the responsibility lie? And I was talking to Christina Alligood, who teaches a, a research um, we call it Consuming, uh, a recent beginner's research reading course for Behavior Works Now. And she said to me yesterday that a behavior analytic viewpoint, that philosophy, that worldview is characterized by no blame to the learner and only help from the teacher. So our science helps us not have a need for blame. Our job is to assess what's going on what are the signals what are the reinforcers and then teach to that build repertoires and i thought that was so fabulous and i wrote it down and i thought i need a facebook post for that the difference between blaming and helping learners yeah so we really have to be careful of that when you have a strong orientation towards learning it really lends itself training and learning it lends itself to helping rather than blaming because we're not looking inside the animal for the organ that is producing this problem. We don't want to negate any help from inside. But then we need our veterinarians to help us with that, maybe through medication or nutritional recommendations. And so again, I say that's why we need an interdisciplinary viewpoint.
0: And I love the current trend towards uh, errorless learning. And it's quite a difficult concept, I guess, to to explain to kind of normal dog owners in terms of what we're doing there. But to use that 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 food and, and um, impulse control example, there are ways that we can train that without the need for, you know, extinction, frustration. You know, we can do that in a way where the, the, the learner doesn't have any errors in the process. And it's just a wonderful way to mitigate, I think, a lot of behaviour problems. And I think our dogs and animals may be learning inadvertently to escalate their behaviour. Um, to communicate with us. And Shirag Patel came up with a lovely line where he said, if we could listen to our dog's whispers, they wouldn't need to shout us. And that is just the most eloquent phrase I think I've ever came across in there. It's fantastic principle. I quote it all the time. Absolutely.
1: You're, you're, you've had good teachers and you're a stellar learner because you're bringing up these, um, these balls of yarn, these tangled ball, balls of yarn. And really what I mean by that is you're, you're, Bringing up the things that are cultural beliefs produce problems for our animals, the cultural fog, this idea that we need mistakes and frustration and errors to learn how to do something, although it's very appealing and consonant with familiar with our cultural view of learning and behavior, it is not scientifically supported. And so there are many studies across many species that show you don't need a mistake to learn how to use your behavior for the reinforcer. And what I love about that concept is, well, and, and you you're, really, it's, you have framed this so well, that idea of purposefully, you know, frustrating an animal with food in our hand until they back away, which is a negative reinforcement approach, it'll work. Where they back away more in order to, you know, escape this denial and then set the next ABC in play, open it up, it's just not necessary. And I don't know how many videos and species we need to demonstrate alternatives to that style, to have people pick it up. And I think what the obstacle is, is that it's just not part of the cultural fog. It's hard for people. To give up what they believe they know to bring on new information. So it's interesting. On the one hand, humans are very novelty oriented. So even when you've got the right technology, you see this with teachers of children in schools, they'll abandon a great curriculum just to get a new curriculum. And on the other hand, we have this tendency to fall in love with what we know now. And then, Like a good marriage, it's really hard to give it up. It's really hard to give it up. We fall in love with our ideas and we arrange our environment so that we're reinforced with them. We hang with people who believe what we believe. We, you know, hang with people who disrespect the alternative thoughts with us, right? Brene Brown has a great label for that. She calls it them. The uh, common enemy intimacy, we we feel the emotion of intimacy, which is so reinforcing and lovely, by having common enemies. We really need to think about that. So this, you've brought up things throughout this conversation together that are really of that category of things that are dividing us because it's hard for all of us to give up what we think is true and valid. And we were hanging around, right? You and I are hanging together. And then there are the people who say, no, you need to have animals experience frustration in order for them to learn how to control it and behave. They need to be suppressed is what I hear some talk to And they're hanging around together. And you bring us together and see if we can't, through discussion, um, cross, come a little closer together on the bridge. Even if we never meet in the middle, has there been anything that just tickled your audience's confidence in what they know to say, hmm, maybe there's something in there worth pursuing? And of course, the same needs to be true for me. I need to crank open that open mind. It's hard. There are locks everywhere on what I think I know in order to bring in something new, you know, like. Uh, the idea of um, genetic tendencies and how is that useful to dog training or an evolutionary perspective and so forth and so on. I got off the track. Let me just sum it up by saying your description of needing to use procedures that purposefully produce frustration and errors is scientifically unsupported if the assertion is it's the only or best way to teach behavior. Because even with our search and rescue dogs, who are a marvel to me, and every year in my class I have a handful of um, explosive detecting handlers from New Zealand. I'm so honored to have them in class because they're doing a whole nother level of training than I am with my pets, you know, my companion animals. But even in that case where we need these animals to go long distances without reinforcers to find the explosive device or the cadaver, they need to have long extinction curves. They're still trained with positive reinforcement and the lean schedule and the not finding, the frustration associated with not finding is faded in slowly, approximation by approximation, gradually. It's not just throwing these dogs in the deep end of the pool. So, when we do that kind of training, impulse control, food impulse control, we're giving um, like pleasant sounding, rational sounding labels and and rationale for things that I I have evidence and you have evidence is not necessary. We get to the same goal without all of that emotional. Negativity.
0: Yeah, totally. People agree. Frustration tolerance is one that I come across quite a lot within dogs. We have to teach our dogs to tolerate frustration um, by building frustration into the learning process, where there's a much more elegant and simplistic way, where there's, you know, it's unnecessary in, in my opinion. I think that takes us really nicely and, and I appreciate we're, we're coming into about an hour and a half, uh, Susan, and I totally appreciate your time. And I knew we would run out of time before we ran out of topics. Um, <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I, knew we would. I, I wonder if we could just quickly cover your wonderful, most, most positive, least intrusive method, um, uh, your ethical structure, which is like my bumper lanes of, of how I operate in, in, in behaviour cases. And I wonder if we could just cover that off for the viewers because I know it's it's so important and it's a wonderful Roadmap, and if if you don't mind, I'll bring that up. Do you mean, chance, if uh, if this isn't
1: absolutely? I'm not in any time hurry. I'm sure that your listeners need a stretch, though, and probably have lots of goals in their day to accomplish. Yeah, so there are different graphics of this conceptual guideline, Um, and I appreciate you ending with this and and giving me some time to think about it with all of you. Um, I think. One of the problems that I want to just bring out on the table at the top is to say that if people work only from the graphic and don't read the two articles that I've written about how to use the hierarchy, they may draw the wrong conclusion. And so I encourage people how do you get people to go to the article and read for a half an hour and not just grab the graphic? Um, So let me urge you to do that. And if you do, They'll give you a little incentive, incentive and you email me, I'll send over to you some of my um, Unlabel Me and other posters and merch that I have. If that just makes it more fun, not a bribe, just a opportunity to email and send you a little treat. Um, and that article, the latest article is Why Animals Need Trainers Who Adhere to the Least Intrusive Principle. And you can get that on my website, behaviorworks.org. You can get anything you want from my website. You can download and uh, and use. Okay. Um, and my contact info is uh, sgfriedman at icloud.com. Sgfriedman at icloud.com. And there's also an, an email interface on my website. Okay, back to work. Thank you for that, Jim. You're so prepared. It's gorgeous. So, the idea, really, the overriding idea is first, we make sure that we have an animal that is healthy or who is not in dire um, unhealth, that that isn't the first thing we address is a healthy animal. We wanna make sure that that is the first thing and that they're nutritional, nutritionally sound and their physical environment is reasonable. They're not in a tiny little kennel and you know 12 hours a day and so forth. So I always wanna start by just saying, what is our veterinary counterpart? Say about embarking on a learning solution with this animal. And I might debate and disagree with them, and sometimes I win and lose, but I will always have the veterinarian close. And then the overriding question from exit two on is when we're teaching, can we do it in the least intrusive way possible? And if we can be effective with a less intrusive tool or procedure, then our ethics, not our science, but our ethics tells us we should do that less intrusive procedure. Now, the next step is, what does intrusive mean? What does it look like? Because it's just a label. So I'm using the special ed common definition um, of intrusiveness. A synonym synonym for it is restrictive or... um, Invasive is another synonym. They're all meaning, pointing to the same idea, the same concept. I- intrusiveness is a continuum from very intrusive to low intrusiveness, and it's defined as the amount of control the learner has, or the less powerful individual in a interaction has, um, over their own outcomes. So this idea, this concept of the least intrusive solution is the best ethically, is not only in special education, but it is in law. It is in law enforcement. We know what that looks like when it's not followed. It's horrific, as I say in the article. It's also in uh, medical bio bioethics. I have found um, discussions of the least intrusive, effective method throughout many, many different professions. So I offer it to our training work now, our care for animals and animal welfare as well. So that's the overriding question. Once you get to level two and you're going to use a learning solution, that is you're going to change the environment to change behavior, then the overriding question is, what is the least intrusive effective procedure? The one that leaves the animal under its Own control to the greatest degree. And then I've arranged it um, in an order that makes sense to me that we would change the antecedent environment first, the um, physical setting, as well as the cues we use, as well as the motivation operations we conduct. And then we would select the right behavior uh, with positive reinforcers. And of course, that needs to be done well. We're not talking about procedures that make animals too hungry or that uh, make them um, experience aversive stimuli before they get to the food treat, like a leash yank called superimposing consequences. We're talking about the proper use, the appropriate use of positive reinforcement to select for the right behavior and then differential reinforcement because that's a combination of reinforcing an alternative to the problem and ignoring the problem, removing reinforcement. That extinction component, the removal component, can be quite stressful for animals to behave and not get the reinforcers they used to get. So that has a speed bump to slow us down and ask again, are you sure you need this procedure? Or can you get this done with antecedent arrangement and positive reinforcement? Then we would go to extinction, negative reinforcement, negative punishment, bigger speed bump, uh, yield sign. And then the least often used um, should be, because it is the most generally the most intrusive, is positive punishment. So sometime we'll do another conversation, Jim, in the future where we just just talk about those procedures and some of the um problems inherent in codifying anything in a graphic um, so that people can be alert to them, like having animals that are starving and calling it positive reinforcement. That's not the ethical spirit in which behavior analysts work. Um, uh, And that, you know, that could be a whole hour together to just talk about exactly what we mean by all of that. But I did put it in the new article, um, why animals need trainers who adhere to the least intrusive principle. And I'm happy to send that over to you if you want to make it available to your listeners, or you can grab it off of behaviorworks.org. Sure. Um,
0: Yeah, absolutely. That
1: says it all for me.
0: Sure. And I'll just show that again, just so people have your contact details. That's your website. Um, Is that right, Susan?
1: Yes. And if you go to that website and down on the table of contents to the merch area, don't go through that paywall. Just write me and tell me what you wish for. Read the article and then say, I read the article, where's my tree? And I'll send it along to you.
0: Fantastic. Baby I mean, are putting it to, And and I would recommend every single trainer, behaviorist, dog owner, anyone that interacts with animals, do do this course. It is genuinely one of the best out there. Oh, I've, thank I've you. Completely shifted my whole view on animal behaviour and, and it's just wonderful. So um yeah, i have been going to that one for sure
1: thank you for mentioning it we love that course we love the students the students love the material it's a love fest that course
0: (laughs) it really is it really is it was a fantastic time and i think we we've probably came to a natural conclusion albeit it sounds like we have a another topic for another time uh, susan hopefully sure i have thoroughly enjoyed uh, speaking to you as, as always and always learn something new when i'm speaking to you Susan. i really appreciate you doing this it's fantastic. In, in the comment section, just show soon a bit of love. I'm sure you will do anyway. And uh, and, and I'll thank you for your time and, and look forward to uh, to seeing you soon. Uh, soon, soon. Thank That'll you end.
1: so much. Thanks, all. Have a great Saturday or Sunday, Everything. depending on where you are in the world. Sure. Yeah. Talk again. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks very much. Bye, everyone.